This is Paul Schneiderman today on the 12th edition of Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue Radio. Today as our special guest, we have a famed Northwest icon, Pat O'Day. Today I'm also to be honored to be co-hosting Sports and Stuff with Rick Dupree, our station's programming director. And Rick is also the host of the great one-on-one with Dupe show. Pat, give me a minute. We're going to give you a little background for the listeners. On this first day of winter, we have a special guest, Pat O'Day. Pat is an iconic figure in broadcasting, music, entertainment, and hydroplane racing circles. Pat is quite the renaissance guy for sure. He hosted a very popular afternoon radio disc jockey KJR show in the 1960s and 70s. Pat is known for playing a big role in bringing the Seattle music scene to national prominence. Pat served as a race announcer and commentator during the Seattle Seafair Hydroplane races from about 1967 to 2013. Pat's the author of a biography that about himself that came that the second edition came out in 2003. It was all just rock and roll too, a return to the center of the radio and concert universe. Today we're going to learn more about Pat's career and his thoughts on all sorts of subjects. Pat, first of all, thank you for coming on Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue Radio. I'm delighted to be with you. Did I do all that stuff? (laughs) I think you did, Pat. That's what you read. (laughs) Sometimes, you know, I got to tell you, uh, I'm now 84 years old. I'm in great health and busy as could be. I'm the uh, uh, premier property director for Windermere Real Estate here on Salmon Island. I'm still very active with Schick Shadle Hospital. But I reflect some days looking back and saying, my God, was I there? Did I? Did I? And I go, yeah, I was, you know. I think about myself being on Elvis Presley's airplane or on the road with Led Zeppelin or this or that or the other thing. You know, I think, did that actually happen? But uh, my goodness, it did. I'm so fortunate to have bumped into all of those opportunities. Love it. Great stuff, Pat. Well, speaking of your music career, can you give us a little background, Pat, on how you became a radio disc jockey and a concert promoter? Well, uh, my father was a minister. He uh, was a pastor of the Alliance Church in Tacoma, a big church, and he had a radio program on KMO, the Tacoma AM station, every morning at 9.15. And I'd go to the station with him. And this is now, I'm eight, nine years old. I'd go to the station with him, and and being the ministry never appealed to me. That's kind of a devilish kid. But that thing called radio, oh, I was fascinated. And a couple of announcers, Clay Huntington, who passed away recently, but a great Tacoma broadcaster, and Rod Belcher were working at the station. And I dreamed of, if you had asked me when I was 12, what are you going to be? I'd have said, I'm going to be a radio announcer. Uh, thinking then I'd be a newsman or a play-by-play sports announcer because there was no such thing as a disc jockey back in the 40s. Uh, Then, of course, I went through school and left high school and off to get my education, dreaming again of radio, ended up at Tacoma Vocational, now called Bates. And and after just six months there, uh, a, a job offer came in from a station in Astoria and the instructor was fond of what I was doing, so he sent me down. They hired me, and uh, after six months there, I was off to the station in Kelso, hired me away to do play-by-play for their basketball uh, games with Kelso High, but also to be the program director. And then Wally Nelskov, a great name in Seattle broadcasting, uh, and a hero of mine, 
uh, was driving to Portland one day, and he heard me on the station in Kelso, and he pulled into the station, which was located on the golf course right next to the highway, and walked in the back door and, and said, you know, I really uh, appreciate what I'm hearing you doing. Would you like to come to work for me at my station in Yakima? Uh, I said, well, uh, I, I'm interested. How much will you pay? Just, I'll pay you $500 a month. <laughs> well, at that time, I was making the glorious amount of 375 Of course, those were different times then. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I agreed, first of all, because it was Wally Nelscog, and also because it was a step up. So I went to Yakima, and after a year and a half in Yakima, uh, was hired by KAYO, which is now at 1150 in Seattle. This is when AM stations prevailed. And uh, went to Seattle in 1958, and a year later was uh, hired away by KJR, and thus the beginning of my 17 years at KJR uh, as disc jockey and program director. And then a sad thing happened. Uh, they made me general manager. Uh, I say that's sad because, God, I loved being on the air, but at the same time, I was only like 32 years old, and they're offering me the general management of Seattle's biggest radio station. You know, we were huge, and I couldn't turn it down, but it caused me to leave the air. And, and that still breaks my heart till today because, uh, oh, did I love opening that microphone and making people laugh or smile or tap their feet or, or do something. But uh, that's kind of the story of, oh, in the meantime, you know, the hydroplane thing happened because in 1967, uh, I'd already started the concert business, and I was in Dallas with Jimi Hendrix when I got a phone call from Channel 13. It was then owned by Elroy McCaw, the father of Bruce and uh, Craig McCaw, who went on later to develop Cellular One and so on. Anyway, uh the Channel 13 sales manager said, Pat, would you come back uh, and do, uh, would you come back tomorrow and uh, do the hydroplane race for us? I said, what's that about? Well, he said, four, five, and seven's engineers have gone on strike, and we're going Pat, to give me one minute. Race. This is and Paul. I said, well, why me? He said, well, I know you know Muncie and all those people, and we just think you would do a good job. I, I think the fact that my show in the afternoon was carrying like 40 shares had something to do with it. But anyway, I went, so I went back to the dressing room and talked to Jimmy, because we were supposed to go to Houston the next night. And I said, Jimmy, I said, Channel 13 called, and, and they went, and Jimmy says, you, Pat, you got to do it, for God's sake, because he loved the hydroplanes, too. We would visit about them. So I flew back, and they picked me up at the airport, and the next morning went on Braniff from Dallas that night. And uh, the sales manager picked me up at the airport, and we're driving down to the uh, course down to Lake Washington. And I said, who's on the team with me? And he said, well, Pat, he says, right at this point, it's just you. I said, just me? <laughs> you know, here's an all-day telecast. I said, he said, well, we'll find some people to help you out. I said, yeah, we'd better. But on Thursday, uh, I'd gone to lunch with Wayne Newton, who was in town, because he did a Seafair concert on, on Friday night and Saturday night. And uh, so I called Wayne at the Edgewater, 
I said, Wayne, I said, you know, you're a good singer, but I said, your real career in the future should be in being the color man on televised hydroplane races. <laughs> and, and he jumped in <laughs> chance, huh? <laughs> what I needed him to do. He said, Pat, I paid for lunch. But I, he agreed, so Wayne came, he was my color man, and we did the telecast of the Gold Cup that day. Uh, now, the next year, Arden Egeter called me, who was the head of Seafair at the time, and said, Pat, can you help me out? We don't have any radio stations that are going to do the race. And he said, you know all the broadcasters. Would you see if somebody would come in? And, you know, at that time, the race was done by news-type stations. But I got to thinking about it. I thought, wait a minute. What if I was to take KJR, my station, and we'll play the hits between the heats, and the hydroplanes are cool, it's a big party on the beach, and we'll have, I'll take my disc jockeys and put them in the turns and in the pits. I think it could be a great event. So as a result, KJR in 1968 went to the course, did the hydroplanes, and thus began that great tradition of uh, KJR and, and the hydroplane races. And in the meantime, the concert business was growing and growing. And, uh, you know, our little Seattle company eventually uh, arrived at a time when we handled uh, Jimi Hendrix and Three Dog Night and Steppenwolf and Led Zeppelin and Bad Company, Creedence Clearwater, Moody Blues, Linda Ronstead, the Eagles, Jackson Brown, Frank Sinatra, Neil Diamond, Chicago, the Beach Boys, uh, you know, it. We did 750 shows one year. Wow. A little is known that our little Seattle company handled every appearance of Elvis from 1969 until his death. Now, that Seattle company, my partners, were Danny Kay and Les Smith, who also started the Seattle Mariners, but uh, they were the partners because it took deep pockets to run that concert business, and, uh, and they had the loot to do it and had the faith in me to step up and joined me in that and uh, along with a guy named tom hewlett another seattle guy from garfield high and terry bassett uh from wenatchee who came and ran the teenage dances with me and then went to dallas and opened the dallas office of concerts west and uh, another local seattle guy that was an important part of that was willie leopold the uh, uh the i guess a nephew of terry bassett and uh willie uh really discovered the group Bread and uh, David Gates and Bread and we handled their day. He now, by the way, handles Linda, Melissa Etheridge and, uh, and the Maroon 5. So, uh, well, there's, there's kind of... Now you, now you interrupt me and tell me what would you like to talk about. <laughs> this is Paul Schneider with Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue Radio with Pat O'Day and Rick Dupree today is my co-host. Pat, I think Rick has a question for you. Well, well Pat, so much... Uh, you, you talked about... Uh, wanting to be on the air and that vision did that also include the, the the promotion i mean did you know you were going to be doing uh concert promotions like that and and be rubbing elbows with with some of the biggest names in in in, in music i mean incredible all the people you worked with well is the question, does I like that more than being on the air? Well, no, I mean, just did you did you envision that as well as being on the air? Was that all part of the plan, or did, how, how did that you kind of fall into that? You know, we don't really get to plan the great things that happen to us, but I still think the answer to success is the ability to say yes. My God, people trying to bring us up and tell us, you know, you've got to be able to say no. 
you got to be careful. You know, say don't don't do this, don't <laughs> do that. I, I got to tell you, our batting average is going to improve when we learn to say yes. That's great advice. Pat, Pat, I, I remember you on KJR and the Hydros, and uh, you mentioned Shik Shano. And, 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 and quick, quick story, but then I want to ask you about the Hydros because it's, it has changed dramatically. And I grew up in Seattle in, in the days where, as a kid, I could walk down uh, th- from Mount Baker Beach to the, to the pits and talk to the drivers and what have you. Now it's so commercialized. But, but I remember at KJR a, a commercial you did, and, and I, I think about it now, and it still brings a smile to my face. And, and uh, it was for Schick Shado, and you said, hey, this is Pat O'Day. I'm the mayor of Roach Harbor. Big deal. And, and then went, I don't know if you remember that, but that was hilarious. I love that commercial that you did. <laughs> well, I was the mayor of Roach Harbor. That's a ceremonial thing uh, with all the power of a, of a, of a slug. Uh, it's, uh, but uh, over the years, uh, I would always go up to Roach Harbor on the 4th of July and and uh, they talked me into becoming the mayor up there. But going back to hydroplanes, uh, it is sad to say, but I'll go ahead and say it, those guys are wrecking that sport. And in a sense, I played a small part in its demise. Uh, My friend Jim Clapp, who was with the Weyerhaeuser family, had built a great yacht uh, that is still on Lake Washington, uh, had twin turbine engines in it. A 70-foot yacht with twin turbines, and and that was exciting. And Jim and I were on a shakedown cruise on his new yacht together, and and he said, you know, Patty, you ought to put these engines in your stupid hydroplanes. And that started a thought, and I said, why don't we try? So we built the U95, the first turbine-powered hydroplane, and that was exciting. Uh, it was an innovation. It was new, but little did I know that the sport would turn entirely to turbines, and when you take the noise away from yeah. racing, to wreck racing. It's like you can't have a big rock festival with acoustical guitars, <laughs> <laughs> and you can't run an exciting race when there's no noise. I mean, those 200-mile-an-hour hair dryers, uh, like we say in Arkansas, that dog just don't hunt. Uh, <laughs> you know, Pat, I used to be able to hear it. Uh, we lived four blocks away. I was up on uh, 31st, not too far from Franklin High School, and you could hear the hydros. You could hear, the, like, like you said, the, the roar of them. And now, yeah, you, you, it, it just has changed so much. And like I said, the commercialization. Uh, but, man, back in the day when you did it, just uh, was so, so exciting. And the community just uh, rallied around it. It was such a big event for, for us every year. Pat, Paul well, Shire. you know, uh, this last year, as you're well aware, uh, Cairo is finally down to doing some kind of a silly recap in the evening of what happened. Uh, this is as opposed to once upon a time when all three stations were covering it. Now, I'm not saying that all three stations would be recovering it if they ran piston engines, but I guarantee you Cairo would still be there because the excitement would still be there. The fans would still be dreaming. The, the, the drivers would still be their local heroes. Yeah, it's true. We didn't have the Hawks or uh, the Mariners and uh, or necessarily the Sonics at the start of the whole hydromania in Seattle, but it could still be playing an important part, just as drag racing is still huge and NASCAR is still huge. The unlimited hydroplane racing could still be huge had they, if they would get back to piston engines. They're down to only about six races a year, which is ridiculous. And uh, I hope they wake up someday. 
Pat, Paul Schneiderman here. What do you see that hydroplane racing could do to make it regain again as a TV sport? Growing up in the 70s and 80s, as you and Rick just talked about, it was a big sport. What, what do you, how do you see hydroplane racing renewing itself, Rick, or Pat? Yeah, point me the commissioner of hydroplanes for the moment, all right? <laughs> yes, sir. Okay, first of all, uh, we're going to get the whole thing finished in three hours. The boats are going to stay in the water. They can refuel them in the water, not taking them out and so on and so forth. One heat after another after another, and the final runs within three or three and a half hours of the start of the race. Nothing but excitement with pistons pounding your chest with their noise. Let the Blue Angels fly for 15 minutes in between one heat or so on, but make it an action-packed afternoon. Now, that makes for great excitement for the fans on the shore. And by the way, let the fans on the shore drink if they want to. (laughs) Outlawing drinking on the shore. Yeah, I'm a six-shadle guy, but uh, there's nothing wrong with drinking unless you drink too much. And uh, let the shoreline be a party. Let the television show last three or three and a half hours with nothing but excitement. And hydroplaning can survive, which it must, because that is the foundation of seafare. And Seafair is a critical celebration for this city that's built around that great event on Lake Washington. So now, uh, having accomplished this, I resign as commissioner. It's commissioner Day sounds really good, Pat. Pat, I got a question for you. We have a <laughs> we have a, a a young guy here, our our uh, engineer James, and James is 22. When I told James the other day that you knew Jimi Hendrix personally, you should have seen the look on James's face. It's like he knew Moses or Jesus or Buddha. Tell us a little bit about Jimi <laughs> Hendrix. It's a well, 75th anniversary. He'd be 75 this year. Tell us some things about Jimi Hendrix that we don't know about. Well, first of all, I think the big thing I can share about Jimi is that Jimi Hendrix was just a Seattle guy and he never changed. The uh, the illusion out there that Jimmy was some wild, way out, drug-infested uh, thing from another universe or something, that, that was the illusion that was created. The real Jimmy was just like me and you. He was Seattle all the way. He loved hydroplanes. And we would talk about all, all kinds of Seattle stuff in between on tour and in the locker room and in the dressing room and so on. Uh, Jimmy was Jimmy was just a down-to-earth gem. And by the way, there's uh, and a, there's such a misunderstanding about his death. Uh, Jimmy was not a druggie. Uh, he smoked weed before the shows, and he smoked a little pot. Uh, he was a good drinker, however, but a druggie, no. Anyway, Jimmy was in London. He and Monica had gone to dinner. Uh, Jimmy had trouble sleeping, always did, uh, and so he would take sleeping pills. Came back from dinner, he'd had some drinks, but he came back from dinner, had had a big dinner. Monica was sleeping in a separate room. He went to sleep, and in the middle of the night, he became nauseated and and started to choke, and in his drowsiness, he got up and didn't respond quickly enough Uh, made it halfway to the bathroom before he collapsed uh, because of choking from from, uh, uh, vomiting, and uh, that's where he collapsed on the floor and he died. Uh, How do I know that? Because 
the record company just plain vanished, claiming they had a suit about royalties. Uh, Chandler and Jeffries, his manager, just blew town when that happened. So Al Hendricks, his dad, called me a couple of three days after he died and said, Pat, what have you heard? Uh, where, what, what's the deal going on with Jimmy? And I said, Al, I don't know. I'll check it out. So I called and found out that Jimmy's body was at the morgue and nobody had claimed it. So we flew wow. to London, claimed the body, bought the coffin, brought it back to Seattle. We bought the gravesite out at Renton, and uh, and uh, that's the story of Jimmy's demise. But Jimmy Hendrix, and I'm telling you, was a gentleman, honest, humble, superlative human being, and uh, I treasure my relationship with him. Great background. Yeah, thanks for sharing that because that's a story that obviously has not been told uh, very often, and uh, nice to hear that uh from your perspective. Pat, can you talk about what was it like to work with the King? I mean, that, that that's just incredible. What's it like to work with what? With the King, Elvis. Oh, uh, that was, uh, Colonel Parker always kept all of us distant from Elvis. Uh, the Colonel was so paranoid that he would lose power with him that uh, uh, he had Elvis and his little clan of guys and, uh, they kept him pretty separate. Elvis is a gentleman. Jesus, he's just a humble, nice, wonderful man. Just that southern boy that he always was. Um, but the colonel never let us get very close to him. Uh, I had one afternoon with him uh, at Graceland and showed me a couple of his cars and so on. And, and then he had some phone calls and he got busy. And, and I never, I ne first of all, there was nothing cold about him. I didn't get better acquainted because the time, you know, there, there just wasn't time. And, and the colonel arranged it on the road to keep everything separated from him. This is Paul Schneiderman, host of Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue with Pat O'Day and Rick Dupree is my co-host today. Pat, I have a question for you. I'm not going to ask you who your favorite musicians are because that's a typical boring question. But can you share with us a couple underrated musicians, a couple artists who never, you thought, got the publicity they deserved? Well, I'll tell you an artist that was underrated for years and still underrated today, despite the fact you've all heard his name, and he's a total humble, brilliant gentleman. His name is Bob Seeker. Uh, Seeker, i got to tell you, when we were handling Bachman Turner Overdrive, we had an opening act on the show that would travel from town to town in his station wagon with a trailer behind it with the band's equipment in it. It wasn't flying on an airplane. He's driving <laughs> in a car, and that was Bob Seeger and his Silver Bullet Band. Uh, later on, of course, he, he got his hits, and he became a, a great, great, well-known star. But that's, that, that, was, that was one wonderful guy. Let's see who else. Well, there was David Gates of Bread. I'm so sorry he retired and the group broke up and went its separate ways because Gates was brilliant. Not only a wonderful gentleman, but God, what songs he could write. And oh, wow, he could deliver them. And uh, so I was always thrilled to be around David Gates. Who else? Well, let's see. And Pat, what, what, what uh, group was Ronstad uh, was very talented. Uh, um Oh, John, I forgot to mention John Denver. Boy, there there was quite a star, and we handled all of his appearances. 
Oh, it was about that John had just released his first record, and he came up, and at that time we had KJR and KISW. We owned both stations. And so KISW was doing a thing where we call it Catch a Rising Star uh, with the shows of the Paramount. And so John Denver just released his first record on RCA. And so John uh, was in Seattle, and he played that night. And then John and I went over to the El Gaucho afterwards uh, for dinner or breakfast and spent an evening talking to John about his dreams and what he hoped could happen. And, and it's so amazing when you look back because they're sitting across the table from each other and saying, God, I hope this and I hope that and I'm going to try this and so on. And then to see it all blossom into one of the great musical careers of all time. I mean, that's, that's real joy to have been a part of that conversation, you know? And Pat, Pat, now we have some uh, information. Are you also on the nominating committee for the uh, uh, Hit Parade Hall of Fame? And, and kind of what, what's your role in, in that capacity? Well, you know, I'm in the disc jockey uh, division of the Hit Parade uh, of the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland. And uh, the Hit Parade Hall of Fame, yeah, I'm on the ballot or on the nominating committee and and uh, do my best to make sure those make those people of greatness aren't overlooked. Pat, Paul Schneiderman again, and this is Paul Schneiderman of Sports and Stuff on Rainier Avenue Radio with Pat O'Day and Rick Dupree as my co-host. Pat, I read something about you that I don't think a lot of people know about. You apparently set a water skiing record. Tell us about your, your water skiing background. <laughs> well, you see, when I got to Seattle Radio, um, I guess you might say, Pat, you've got an ego problem. Uh, I hate being overlooked. Uh, when it came to broadcasting. And uh, so I was doing things to try and get attention. Uh, so it was my first year when I was at KAYO. And uh, and uh, with the sponsorship of the Evinrude dealers, uh, I set a Guinness Book of World Record water skiing record. I water skied nonstop around Mercer Island for four hours and 52 minutes. Love it. Uh, Love it. Pat, Which is quite a tiring experience. <laughs> Pat, we'd love to talk to you more. We're going to have. Oh, then later on, I set another record of a go kart driving record. Uh, there was a go kart track <laughs> down on Corson. Uh, do you remember where that place was, the Hats and Boots gas station? Well, right behind that was a, a big warehouse, and it became a go indoor go kart racing place. And uh, I drove a go kart. For 23 hours and 30 minutes, wow, nonstop one night. But I passed out. Uh, there, there was too much carbon monoxide in the air. Oh wow! <laughs> 23 and a half hours, I passed out. They took me to the hospital and pumped me up with some oxygen and brought me back to life. But uh, those are fun things you do uh, because because you have the chance to do them, you know. Pat, great stories. We're winding down now here on sports and stuff. We do hope to have you back one day, Pat, but thank you so much for joining us today for this conversation. Well, I do. I'm delighted. And guys, do what you can. You know, uh, broadcasting is deficient right now because they've taken the companionship out of it. They have disc jockeys saying things like, hey, good time and great oldies, you know. Oh, give me a break. <laughs> Talk to people, for God's sake. Uh, so anyway, radio is is very deficient in not talk radio but music radio is deficient but it needs young people to recapture what radio can be 
the theater of the mind and a companion and a friend that makes you laugh or makes you cry or makes you smile or makes you do something. Because when you do that and couple that with great news and then play hit songs, you win. Thank you so much, Pat. We'll be in touch. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks, Pat. Take care.